David is a fugitive. This time he comes dangerously close to Saul, risking it to see Jonathan, his friend, and plead his case before him. He says, look, if there is some sin in me, then you execute the judgment against me. Otherwise, what is it with your father and is seeking to kill me? Jonathan is somewhat naive here, claiming that that's not the case. But, this, but he doesn't have the whole story as you, as you and I do. We have been reading along and we've seen all the episodes of David's life. But Jonathan doesn't know what Saul has been doing. He is naive. David thinks he's hiding his intent because he knows that he and Jonathan are friends. So they devise a plan to find out the truth. David will stage an absence from Saul's court, and Jonathan will mark his response at David's absence. Once Jonathan has determined the truth, they will meet again at a predetermined place and discuss it. They then renew their covenant vows with one another, and Jonathan pledges to tell David the truth, and he pleads with David not to remove his covenant faithfulness. All goes as planned, and Saul reacts predictably, holding his peace the first night at David's absence, but then exploding in anger when the third night arrives without David's presence. And as Jonathan makes excuses for David, Saul's rage gets the better of him, and he curses Jonathan's mother, demanding that Jonathan give David up to him. And when he refuses, Saul tries to kill him in the old familiar way of pinning him to the wall with his spear. This time, Jonathan is angry, and he leaves the feast with a fierce anger, taking no food. And as they had agreed, David and Jonathan meet under the pretense of Jonathan doing some bow practice. They had determined that if Jonathan should shoot the arrows and say to the boy who were to cover him, the arrows are beyond you, then that would mean that it's not safe for David. He cannot return. And that is exactly what Jonathan speaks to his servant, and and after which David comes and bows three times, and they embrace, they renew their covenant vows, and David leaves, and Jonathan returns to the city. And they, in this meeting, there is a sense of the end, that this might be the last time they get to be together. Now, we know that Jonathan will come out to the wilderness and encourage David, but David, at this point, doesn't know that. There are two things I want to draw out from this episode. First, David had to rely on Jonathan to persevere in this situation. He couldn't go it alone, but he relied on the friendship formed within the covenant community. And secondly, for David to rely on Jonathan, Jonathan must have a reputation of being reliable. These point to two aspects of being in a community. Reliance on the community and reliability. Both foster the kind of community that enables us to persevere through repeated hardships. Now I want to show you where I see this. The text doesn't tell us exactly where David met Jonathan, but given that he goes into the feast where his father Saul is, we can guess that he's reasonably close to him which means that David puts himself in harm's way just to go and meet his friend. Saul, the very person David is trying to avoid, is close by, yet David throws himself upon the mercy of his friendship with Jonathan. He is tired of being out on the run. 
and knows that apart from the support of the covenant community, he will perish. Better than to fall into the hands of his brother and have him render a verdict than for him to go it alone. As the proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27.6 You see, Israel had very tight rules that governed belonging to a covenant community. Because Israel was a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to be set apart, that is consecrated for service to God, they were to be a certain kind of people. Membership in the community was regulated. You had to be circumcised. You had to walk in the Torah, which was an expansive set of case laws that taught Israel how to apply the Ten Commandments to an agrarian society in their culture. How do we live as the people of God? They had to walk out the Torah. Now, certain sins would lead to the death penalty and excommunication from body life, and some sins would just lead you to be unclean, be outside the camp only for a time. There was a way for sin to be dealt with through the sacrificial system, which is meant to signify that the way of repentance is costly by death and through a substitute. Saul, as a magistrate, is seeking to excommunicate David from the community. Literally, cut him off from life. Right? That's what death is. The ultimate excommunication. And Saul wants to cut David off from the community, but for no sin of his. Not for anything, any violation of any covenant community standards, but for his own personal vindictiveness. He is not being a faithful magistrate. And David pleads with Jonathan, look, if I have sinned, if there's something in me, If I have done it, then you kill me yourself. If I am worthy of being excommunicated from the community, from life itself, there's only a few sins that lead to the death penalty. If I have been guilty of any of those things, then you do it. I would rather die at your hands. I'm willing to submit to the punishment because David takes membership in the covenant community as its highest importance such that he risks his life and has placed himself in the hands of his closest friend, someone he relies on within the community to vindicate his guilt. Um, I mean, just just think of the storyline. He flees out a window of his own house to flee from Saul. He runs to Samuel, the next person in the covenant community he can think of to help him. Now he's like, I'm out of options. I don't know what to do. He goes all the way back. You can imagine Jonathan's probably in Gibeah, where Saul is. He goes back to the place where he fled from just to, be, just to plead his cause with his friend. Somebody he believes can vindicate him from this. Now you might be thinking to yourself, how did, how did you get the importance of the covenant community from this episode? The truth is, it's right there on the surface of the text that that David doesn't flee to Egypt and take up residence there. He could have. Never showing any care to return. He could have just said, 
I'm done with this king thing. This is way too hard. I did not bargain for this. I'm out of here. I'm going to Egypt. I'm going to live out the rest of my days in peace. Second, he has developed and maintained a close covenant relationship with with Jonathan. And it points to his willingness to rely on him to persevere through repeated hardships. The question is, do you? Do you value the covenant community and how much? Are you working to cultivate covenanted friendships that you can rely on in times of hardship? In his definitive research on the decline of communities, published in 2000, his book called Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam has shown the rapid decline of communities in the U.S. In that book, he outlines a substantial deterioration in the social connectedness and a reduction in social trust in America, which is what he claims from the 70s to now has been in straight decline. Whereas the pre-war period from 45 to 65, it was growing. People were becoming more connected. He's not a Christian. He bumbles about for why this might be. But despite being written before the explosion of social media, his book, Describe the decline in community, which 20 years on is only deepened. We're more fractured. We're less connected. We may have greater ability to be connected, but we're not. We are the most disconnected age ever. We are, as another sociologist put it, alone together. I'm often stunned. I I will be in a restaurant or something, and I'll see a, a whole table full of young people. None of them are looking at each other. They all have their phone in their hands, and they're looking down at their phone. And they're in a community. They're in a group eating together. But nobody's talking to each other. They're talking through something. Some of them might even be texting each other in that group. They feel connected, but they're not. They struggle even just to make eye contact with each other and to engage in meaningful conversation. At the same time, we are a culture that craves community. We want it badly. This is evidenced by how many Facebook groups there are, how many Reddit groups there are. You can find these little communities online where you might feel like you're connected. The affinity groups, they don't make community because the things held in common are too thin. They can't unite you. They're not thick. They're not thick communities. They're nothing like the church which has existed for millennia. But they do provide us with an apologetic, right? We can talk to people, a bridge we can build when talking with people about the gospel. The fact is, we were made for a relationship. We were made for community because our Creator God is a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who subsist in loving, covenanted community. And it's the overflow of that loving relationship that created the world. Trinity is the only way we can account for a strong desire for unity and the presence of diversity. For within the Godhead, there is perfect unity and diversity. But sadly, we are seeing the same disconnectedness in the church. People rarely covenant to be a part of one particular body, but drift from here to there, 
You see, membership is not saying that somehow we have a corner on the market of the gospel. It's not saying that hope is the only church. It's not saying that we are in distinction to somebody like Music Alliance up the road. We've got the truth and they don't. That's not what membership is saying. You join one community precisely because you cannot join them all. And by joining one, you make a public declaration that I am all in on this community. I cannot be covenanted with them because I do not know them. But I have committed to know these people and to lovingly walk alongside them in the faith. That's what membership means. The relational element is critical for your growth and maturity in the faith. So that those who bounce from here to there, they never enter into deep relational connections that facilitate discipleship. Suppose you don't know anyone you worship alongside of. In that case, you're robbing them of the opportunity of speaking into your life both to encourage and to admonish you towards greater faithfulness in your walk with the Lord. But how can they do that if they don't walk with you? You can be anonymous. Maybe that doesn't describe this group. Many of you have committed to this community for a long time, longer than I've been here. But that doesn't mean we may not slide into apathy and neglect the community. You do a disservice to the covenant community when you allow the American virtue of self-sufficiency to keep you from relying on each other. Once a man bragged that he had never once shared a prayer request with the church. He boasted that when they had need in their family, they did not ask anyone for help. He thought this was a virtue. He was proud of this. I've never asked the church for prayer. I've never asked the church for help. That's not a virtue. And it's not surprising that man did not last in church. He left. He left that community because he failed to be a part of it. He failed to rely upon them. They could not be bothered to rely on the covenant community and so they alienated themselves from the life of the body. And they robbed not only themselves, but they robbed the whole church our ability to use our gifts to walk alongside them. Let me be clear. Without thick membership within the covenant community, you will not persevere through repeated hardships. You will not. You will die out alone as a Christian. And your faith will burn out. You must train yourself away from the rugged individualism and the American virtue of self-sufficiency, and learn to embrace your neediness. Learn to come and rely on the community. This is harder for us men. I get it. I don't want to ask for help either, right? I can fix this on my own. I got this. I understand. It might belittle your pride, but that's good. Your pride needs to be taken down. Because you need to learn to let others step in and help you. Yes, some of us are not very good looking. And we might smell a bit. And we have a whole lot of baggage. A lot of sin. We might have sinned against each other for years. 
but we are on the same journey. And the journey, as we saw last week, is to wander in the wilderness until God gets the world out of us and Christ formed in us. And much to the chagrin of some of you, this is a collaborative effort. It's not a one-on-one thing. It's a group effort. God makes us a part of the covenant community. We have to rely on each other to persevere. But it's not just rely. We, we need to be reliable. We need to be the kind of people that others can rely on. We don't just see that David relies on the community, but we also see that Jonathan is reliable. It's, it's come up already several times that the remarkable character of Jonathan. He is himself a stirring picture of Christ. This episode only adds luster to that image, providing us with an example worthy of emulating. One thing I will not spend much time on this morning, but is rather remarkable, is Jonathan's ability to think the best of someone. We know better, as we've seen behind Saul's plotting David's death, but Jonathan, last he knew, had calmed Saul down extolling David's virtues and providing a way for David to return to the court in chapter 19, verses 4 and 7. And we know that Saul's acceptance was thin and easily turned aside, but Jonathan still thinks well of his father. That's remarkable. How many of us, one offense, and you will never think highly of that person again. I know I've done that. Nor after that one offense would you give them the benefit of the doubt. The key, of course, is to frame everything in terms of the cross. We can sympathize with each other because we know that we are sinners too, and we know that our sins nailed to Christ on the cross just as much as theirs is, if not more. Yet if God has accepted them, why shouldn't we? A surprising lot of the offenses given us by others may be covered over in love. But instead, we distrust, we treat poorly, and we maintain scrupulous records of wrongs done. We're great bookkeepers. We know exactly what that person did to us seven years ago in two months and three days. As we'll see, there's a time for righteous indignation. But I fear we are not mature enough to know when that point is. And the fury of our wrath is kindled much too quickly. Ah, she looked at me wrong. And then it's ah, it's just, that's it. And is that the thing that should get our moral outrage? No, it's not. It should be covered over. Jonathan is not only gracious to Saul who, as we know, is not deserving. But he's also gracious towards David. He consents to David's request to sound out his father that they may know the truth. David finds in Jonathan a reliable brother, one who at great personal risk will look to David's interests. One who has, remarkably enough, already stripped himself of any of his royal prerogatives and given them to David. Here in this episode, he is confronted again with a choice. Will he pursue the kingdom of God or will he turn like his father Saul and pursue building his own kingdom? You can imagine the story going quite differently. 
Imagine that instead of answering Saul in verse 32, he, he instead thinks to himself, Ha, ah, maybe dad is right. Am I thinking this through? I certainly don't want to go against the family. I mean, isn't family first? Shouldn't my loyalty lie rather with my father before this David fellow? I mean, after all, I am the rightful heir to the throne. And when, I, when I'm king, I'm going to use my power for good. I won't be petty like my father or vindictive like him. So maybe I'll just sit quiet and see how this thing plays out. I mean, it's not like I'm going to kill David. I'll just let, just let it happen. Let's just see what happens. But that's not what Jonathan does. Instead, with great cost to himself, he defended David's innocence and broke off fellowship with his own father. What the author of Hebrews said of Moses could also be said of Jonathan. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, Jonathan chose to be mistreated with David rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of pursuing his own kingship. Do you have friends like that? Are you that kind of friend? Are you reliable within the covenant community? Hearts warm when we consider that kind of friendship. We, of course, want friends like Jonathan. And we may even want to be that kind of friend. But we find a huge gap between what we want and what we actually are. I have one particular episode in my life that I'm ashamed of. Where I fell stunningly far from my ideal. My good friend had just had a baby. And my wife was there at the birth and realized as soon as he was born that The child had Down syndrome. And we were a very close-knit community, very close church, much like Hope Church. We had a practice of having baby showers that all of the males and females, all the families came. And we celebrated the birth of this child, blessed the new family, and would fall to one of the men in the church to give a charge to the father, whether he was a new father or not. And so I was asked to give a charge to this man who just had this Down syndrome baby. I remember getting all my notes right and getting everything and encouraging him, strengthening him, all good things to say. And then I didn't have this in my notes, but I just was provoked. And I just said, brother, you need to lean on us. It's going to be hard. You're going to have hospital appointments. You're going to need to get away with your wife. You need to rely upon us. Let us watch him. Let us help and care for him. Let us be there so that you can take time and get away. But then as... As time went on, and it was so challenging. He had heart surgeries, and he, was ch- he not only had Down syndrome, but he had autism. And we wanted to love them, but we felt so like, how could we do it? How, and I thought, how could I, how could I watch him? I, I might hurt him. I don't know what I'm doing. And I, I just began to make excuses. But then after a while, I just began to think, ah, I really hope he doesn't ask me. I just hope he doesn't ask me. 
I'm ashamed of that. I'm ashamed that I wasn't the kind of person that could be relied upon. And, and many of our church felt the same way, and eventually they, they left. They didn't have the kind of community or friends that would see them through that. And I say that because we all have an ideal that we're striving for, and we all need to kill our own proclivities to focus on what's right in front of us what's in our lives and miss what's happening in our brother and sister. Sometimes we need to rely upon each other and sometimes we need to be reliable. I've been encouraging the men of Hope Church to cultivate deep personal friendships with other men. Let me extend that to all of you. To have a reliable covenant community that can support you through hardship, you must be the kind of person that can be relied upon. It is this reliable, it is this network of relationships that creates reliable communities. And that network is made up of individuals devoted to giving them themselves in sacrificial ways, in costly ways. Individuals who try to outdo one another. Did you hear that from Paul? Outdo one another in showing honor. We should be rushing to the aid of others. And many of you do. And I'm grateful for that. And I see it. I see your desire to invest in the community. And this, of course, is the purpose that Jesus sent, was sent into the world. To unite us together as a community. To bring us wayward sinners back into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Just as he prayed in his high priestly prayer. He said that they all may be one. That is all of you may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. How does the world know that Jesus was sent in the world to save sinners? Because you love your brother and sister in Christ. Because you give of yourself in sacrificial ways. And the world says, wow, look at that community. I want to be a part of that. I want to experience that love and I want to give it. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. You will be devoured. We cultivate Christ-likeness by making ourselves reliable within the covenant community, within the church. We image forth the triune God when as we as a community begin to embody that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so I end with Paul's exhortation from, Paul, from Romans 15 to Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf to unite us to him to unite us to you and reconcile us back to the Father and to make of us a new community, a community marked by the unity that we have in the bond of peace. We pray that we would embody that as we learn to be 
reliable, trustworthy, dependable men and women within this covenant community and as we learn to rely on others, to give our burdens so that others may help us carry them and to carry others' burdens. In doing so, we may draw the world which is watching, hopefully, for a community that they can be a part of. Let us embody that, we pray, here at Hope Church as we learn to be more like Christ. For we pray this in his name, and amen. Amen. Saints, we're going to respond together by standing.